Hello, my name is Lori Ellis, Head of Insights at Biospace. Welcome to Denatured. Today you're listening to the third and final part of a discussion between Paul Agapow, Director of Innovation, Statistics, and Data Science at GSK, Mike King, Senior Director of Product and Strategy at IQVIA, Nindanam Parathaman, Executive Medical Director at Exalexis, and Morris Van Stosh, CIO at DataHow. The complete discussion explores data accuracy, data bias, challenges with AI, benefits, and also explores the future. Before we begin, we have one disclaimer. Nothing Paul Agapal speaks of reflects current projects or policy within GSK. And with that, let's dive into the discussion. I just wanted to touch base on another point that Paul was mentioning earlier, which was related to real-world data. This is Nindanam Parathaman speaking, Executive Medical Director at Exalexis. And just the sheer volume of real-world data sets that we have access to, and something that you know we could, in fact, also apply in the setting of just uh, study design. And this is more related to um, essentially, you know, utilizing synthetic control arms and therefore uh, being able to reduce the sample size that's required even for new studies uh, that need to be run and being able to actually reduce the number of trial arms by using these synthetic data sets. And then the second is related, in fact, to data analysis and interpretation that I think, you know, would be really helpful maybe to have this group also discuss, which is related to more so how can we um, utilize these technologies to even you know, handle like missing data sets, as well as even accounting for missed visits when we're collecting data and, and analyzing it. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because the data cleaning uh, process in and of itself sometimes actually lengthens the conduct of trials. And that is something that can be efficiently reduced, um, I think, with, with the use of these applications. So I'm curious to hear the rest of the group's thoughts here in relation to this. It's yeah the the issue of missing data is uh, is a fairly keen one because once again uh, health data patient data real people data doesn't behave like an idealized data matrix when we're coming down to analyze it uh, patients are inherently uh, messy complex things they have lots of other things going on in their lives they miss visits. This is Paul Agapal speaking director at Glasgow SmithKline. They take their medications with uh, strange irregularity, things like that. So how do we, I think maybe there's there's two parts of that. There's fixing the data in a trial and the clinical trials are regulated space and that's kind of tough. So I'm going to put that aside. I think for the purposes of R&D, maybe there are some techniques that are coming in, in AI that will Whole, all of those associated with knowledge graphs, graph convolutional networks, uh, with longitudinal analysis and so on and so forth, that are more likely to capture the richness of a patient and all that's going on with them across a time span in there, as opposed to looking at a patient just as a snapshot in time and ideal. 
but that's more for a research uh, yeah, preclinical setting. As for trials, I'm not sure. And one could one could add all these these devices which we're carrying with us, right, to measure the heart frequency and so forth. I mean, it it doesn't replace um, necessarily that some things might not have been recorded, but perhaps we can use that as a mechanism to infer other events that, um, for instance, uh, exercise or so that that should be recorded and that might have an impact on your outcome. This is Moritz van Stasch speaking. CIO at DataHow. But that per se is not recorded by the patient and or doctor, right? So we can somehow add on to this, use this as a proxy to maybe not fully account for the missing data, but so to some part fill that information in as a proxy. You know, I did a similar view actually. I was thinking about the um, the impact in AI and being able to do some form of statistical analysis to help us change human behavior. This is Mike King speaking, Senior Director at Acuvia. Um, so, you know, again, thinking of a family member um, who, who has a diabetic pump, there are some moments when the control of diabetes is not as good as the others. And at the moment, it's you know, human intervention from a couple who can see when things go a, a bit amiss. When you're looking at um, your broader based clinical trials, if you've got an absence of data, but you're able to pinpoint potential influences as to why that's absent, you can communicate that back to the patient in question and, and say, hey, you know, when this type of event occurs again, could you be more conscious in doing X, Y, and Z? I think, you know, as well as the interpolation of data and the statistical analysis, it can also be used to then engage in a human-to-human -human interaction to change behaviour, which will then hopefully reinforce the gathering of data to improve the certain um, you know, activities that are in question. I also wanted to ask a little bit more about changing human behaviour. One, from working with this data, but then also Mike brings up a, a good point of changing patients' human behaviour and how they're actually responding to treatments. But then do you see this going forward? I, I think that absolutely it's going to have an effect. I mean, let's actually, let's break this down into two parts. One is almost kind of the systematic thing. As soon as you put AI in a system and people start responding to the AI, that's going to change the behavior. I think that happens in there. If the AI is being trained upon what is happening, the data in the system, we get this closed loop where uh, things are going to alter. So that's a problem for the modelers. But then there's there's people, and it, I think, you know, we sometimes forget. So we easy to forget how these small little aids to our lives have changed our behavior already. You know, just smartphones and things like that, Alexas and smart devices in our life, and those who are clever about getting us to use med tech and trial devices and so forth uh, in our lives will take that patient behavior into account. How can they make it very frictionless for the patient to use this device to report their data back to the trial center? How can they make it appealing for that patient to use? You know, and so there is going to be very close study, I think, of patient behavior in these circumstances. And those who are clever about it are going to be the winners in there. How do we give a benefit to the patient for participating in this trial other than just the, the shall we say, warm fuzzy of I'm in a trial or this drug might help me and so forth, you know? How do we make that process frictionless once again and appealing to them? 
And just saying, right, appealing to them, we can, of course, customize it for the person. And that means you can really make it appealing to the individual, which is something that at the moment is not possible. And I think if you make it appealing to the individual, you also will have higher participations because you're no longer treating the average person, but the individual per se. I think if I might add, um, just going back to, um, you know, even treatment adherence and kind of enabling and, and reminding patients to stay on track with their drug doses. And in fact, also uh, the impact that it has. And I think it's a win for the industry as well, because that minimizes patient dropouts on trials and also ensures that we're getting the best possible outcomes for these patients. And in fact, enabling more accountability on the patient's part um, as far as looking for signs and symptoms of potential adverse events and just kind of prompting them to even, you know, have or better communication with their healthcare providers. I think it's it's definitely a benefit for how, um, you know, this can impact patient behavior on the trials. Um, and I think along these lines, just in terms of being able to enable more accountability on the patient's part also allows for potential, you know, decentralized approaches for trial conduct and less burden on um, sites and patients um, in terms of the number of visits that they might have to um, encounter as a result in, of participation in trials. So I think I see a lot of pros to this in terms of being able to impact patient behavior and um, their relationship with the providers and investigators at the sites. Nintana uh, makes some very good points there that, you know, the the old model of clinical trials, which got a good shake up during the pandemic, was, you know, the patient comes into the doctor's office once a month, once every two months, so on and so forth. And, you know, that doesn't give you a great picture of that patient and it's inconvenient and we're getting poorer data than we might do in those cases. Whereas if we can have this decentralized trial idea where they may be carrying a device or they may be otherwise reporting in once a day electronically something or other this is making things a lot easier for the patient we're getting a lot better quality data including i might say in the area of like patient compliance as well too where you know notoriously patients lie and uh, there is perhaps apocryphal story of a uh, a digitally enabled pill dispenser that patients took away with them to take a once a daily pill and uh, unknowing that the uh, pill dispenser was actually tracking when the pills were being dispensed and you know if you look into this data what they found was of course patients were skipping days or they were perhaps just before they saw the doctor they dispensed six pills at once and then put them in the bin so that they could say that they'd had their full dose for that so these more let's say close hands-on sort of devices could really improve clinical trials for the patients and for those that are looking at the data from the patients you know i was going to say it's a, it's a nice example actually of where the world of medical devices and pharmaceutical can come together and you actually get a, a patient-focused solution and, and, and with those components together again assuming an individual on a clinical trial has some form of, of device or diagnostic type feedback system you can get real-time feedback to human behavior that then improves in real time the quality of data that will come through for the clinical trial and it's, it's quite interesting again that link between ai between data between human behavior 
and obviously in all three there's there's the potential for bias there that we've been discussing but um you know ultimately if you look at those those technologies ai type systems and, and humans coming together the focus is around improving healthcare outcomes i think i've been spending a lot of time on um, clinical trials um, prior to a drug gets approved by a regulatory authority and maybe there's just one other um, real world use case i i, I want to highlight and this is more from a post marketing standpoint that is you know, really a great example of um, how we can utilize this technology. And this is actually going to um, more so um, the example that I'm referring to is home cardiac surveillance with an AI-based digital mon patient monitoring tool um, for, for a drug, which in fact had very high rates of cardiac um, safety events that often requires these patients to be more closely monitored Sometimes for patients who might have uh, comorbidities that predispose them at higher risk for these events to even be admitted on an inpatient basis for monitoring. But just by uh, the utilization of this home-based cardiac surveillance tool, we were able to uh, monitor these patients at home with um, registered nurses and showed better outcomes as a result of uh, this tool. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great example of um, just going beyond the post-marketing standpoint where in a real world setting, we're still able to really look at how um, these patients are being managed by their providers. And just also, again, to the point I was mentioning earlier in terms of treatment adherence, ensuring that they're able to continue on um, these treatments uh, for their actual you know, oncologic condition in this instance. Bring an additional thought to that, right? For me, the question is who would provide this, right? Who would provide this data platform? Who owns the data um, and who afterwards benefits from this? Because I mean, here the data becomes really valuable. It's a valuable insight that you can perhaps either take back to the company who developed the drug. Um, and I mean, you could even go further, right? You could look for drugs which are already in the market. You record this data and all of a sudden you find new ways of using this drug and potential also in combination with other drugs. So that opens completely a new round, right? And also a new round, of course, um, not only for, for the established players, but also for the tech companies to enter that market. So it's a good point there, I think, that we're, you know, we're all using the same tools and all these algorithms are out in the uh, public. And, you know, particularly at the moment where a lot of people are all using the same large models, things like that. What is, you know, what is the benefit? What is the edge that any particular participant or player in this space has? And that's going to come down to data. Do you have the data to send towards or give towards essentially the same set of tools as everyone else has? Can you leverage this core better than anyone else with your special data? I was going to say yes, and the bit I'd add would be, and and is it commercially viable? Is probably the last bit. And I know, um, you know, sort of dra dragging it back round to, to to commerce. If if you look globally, I mean, most most I say most, it's a generalisation, but most healthcare markets they're either constrained by insurance uh, or by government spend. So that there is a, a limited pot in there. Uh, so these solutions need to be cost effective and any any cost that a manufacturer incurs ultimately or eventually goes through in, in purchase price and, and comes in as, as cost of goods as well. So these these high end solutions at some point need to generate a profit for them to be viable. And, and that's often the challenge as well is where you've got a, a heavy investment up front. You need to at some point be able to gain a return 
in order for that organization to remain viable. Um, so yeah, I agree with everything Paul, Paul said, and I'd, I'd just add, and be commercially viable. Yeah, and I think a very interesting example is 23andMe, no? They uh, aggregated this giant database of uh, DNA sequences of people who were volunteering also to share that for scientific purposes. And these people were, of course, paying for the DNA test, right? And at the beginning, um, these DNA tests were heavily subsidized by 23andMe because they were really interested in the data. But nowadays, that um, yeah, DNA sequencing is so cheap, there's no longer the need to subsidize it. People still contribute to that. And I mean, publicly known is that GSK has a collaboration with 23andMe, right? So now they really benefit from this huge uh, treasure of DNA data. Well, that concludes the third part of our discussion. I'd like to thank again Paul, Mike, Morowitz, and Nindana for participating. As you know, the uses for AI within the pharmaceutical industry are constantly evolving. While this podcast is not going to solely be dedicated to AI, we will continue to have discussions with industry leaders as AI adoption continues. If you have any questions or comments, please contact me via email.